So, um, I don't know about you, but in my household, we have begun watching Christmas movies. Thanksgiving is over, so it's fair game. (laughs) So, we're watching Polar Express and The Grinch and uh, Christmas Story and Christmas Vacation and, um, you know, you... You have your favorites, and, uh, and that's fine. Um, and one of the things that I've discovered about Christmas movies is there's one thing that ties all of them together as a genre. Uh, and strangely enough, it has nothing to do with uh, actually taking place around Christmas. Um, Christmas movies are all told in five acts. Every single one. There are five acts to any Christmas story. Act one is that the expectation is set. Uh, So we will uh, use National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation to make sense of this. So in the first act of Christmas Vacation, Clark is telling everyone, I'm having everyone to my house. We're going to have a good old-fashioned family Christmas, just like what I grew up with. It's going to be awesome. The expectation is set. And then in Act 2, the expectation is enhanced. So the expectation was already high, now it's through the roof. So in Act 2 of Christmas Vacation, he's telling his co-worker, you know, I need this Christmas bonus to come in because I've already put down the down payment on the pool that I'm going to buy with the Christmas bonus. So expectation set, expectation enhanced. In Act 3 things start going a little bit sideways. Cousin Eddie shows up. And all the hopes of that perfect family Christmas, you know, they're starting to look a little dicey. But that's nothing compared to Act 4, when the bottom falls out entirely. The telegram arrives. Clark's Christmas bonus is in in his hands. And what is it? A membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. Well, staple my face to the floor, right? But no Christmas movie is finished until Act 5, when hope is restored and expectations are exceeded. Brian Doyle Murray walks in, tied up in Christmas lights with a Santa hat, a big bow on his chest, and says, Okay, Clark, uh, whatever your Christmas bonus was last year, uh, increase it by 10%. And this is the way every Christmas movie works. Every single one. Like, go back and think about your favorite one. Yeah, it follows that too. Uh, we, we understand uh, almost subconsciously that Advent is a season of expectation. We're all looking forward to what's coming at the end of the month. I mean, even the way the weather works, days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, and at the end of the month they start getting longer again. This is a month of expectation. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about what were Israel's expectations at the time of Jesus' birth? And what are our expectations for today? And how do we see Jesus exceeding those expectations 
in restoring our hope. So at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, there is a psychologist by the name of Adam Grant. Um, and Adam Grant says that happiness equals expectations times reality. So, so in other words, uh, our level of happiness comes, uh, is, can be quantified by how much reality either lines up with our expectations, falls short of our expectations, or exceeds our expectations. So if we have uh, a certain expectation and, um, and reality is half as good as that expectation, we'll find ourselves pretty sad or maybe angry even. But likewise, if we have an expectation and things turn out better than we expect, then our happiness couldn't be higher. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see Israel demand a king. Uh, So at this point, Samuel is already getting old. Uh, He's been the judge of Israel, and he appoints his sons, and his sons are total duds. They are nothing like Samuel. They are uh, corrupt little punks who take bribes, and subvert justice, and the other elders pull Samuel aside and say, you have to do something about your boys, Sam. In verse 4, we read this. So all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel and said, you are old, and your sons don't follow your ways. So appoint us a king to lead us, just like the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, they have forsaken me and served other gods, and as they are doing now to you. So listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Then Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. And some he will will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow the ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters and make them cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage, and he will give it to his officials and his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own. He'll take a tenth of your flocks. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king Over us, we want to be like the other nations, with a king to lead them and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Now, this makes no sense to us whatsoever as Americans. The idea of wanting a king? We're 300 years into this democracy experiment. We have no desire to go back to some uh, bloated royal sitting on a throne in London Uh, telling us that he's going to charge us tax without asking us first. Right? 
We have only experienced monarchy as a colonist. We've only experienced monarchy as someone who is, or as, as a people who have been taken advantage of for the sake of the home country. But it's different having a king or a queen when you're a citizen. Like, the, the English feel a lot different about the queen than we do. There's a pride there, there's a connection there that we simply don't understand. And when we look at historically what role uh, kings played, I mean, it, there, is, um, there is sense in the people wanting a king. Because what a king offers more than anything else is consistency. With a king, you know you have, you know who your military leader is going to be. You know who your diplomatic leader is going to be. You know who's going to, uh, who's going to go to bat for you and your country on the world stage. And you know that generation by generation, you have someone to step into that role who's been trained to do that job and no other job their entire life. There are things about having a king that make sense. But only if you're a citizen. Because if you're a citizen, the king can go to bat for you. The king can take you to war. The king can do diplomacy for you. Which again, makes no sense to us. Because we've already decided the price of the king's love is a price we're unwilling to pay. So Israel demands a king in 1 Samuel 8. Uh, Samuel first anoints Saul as king. Um, he does okay, but not great. He doesn't listen to God. Uh, so then Samuel anoints David as king. And David is the cat's pajamas. He is the greatest king Israel ever has. When people think about what it is to be a king, they think about David as Primary example one, uh, Solomon just below him, and then the rest of them. And what sets David apart? What set David apart was his ability to command the Israelite army. They were a well-oiled machine. In chapter 18, uh, verse 6, uh, we read that when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul. Saul was still king at this point. Uh, with singing and dancing and joyful songs. With timbrels and lyres, they danced and they sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Which, of course, this made Saul very angry. Uh, going on to 2 Samuel chapter 8, uh, we read uh, that in the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. He took uh, Methig Amah from the control of the Philistines, and he also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground, and he measured them with a length of cord, and every two lengths of them were put to death. 
and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Uh, skipping forward to verse 6. Uh, he put garrisons on the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Uh, are you getting the picture? David was like Sherman going through the south through the land of Cana. He was unstoppable. Under David, the borders of Israel extended in every direction. They had more wealth than ever before. They had uh, more countries that were, that were paying them taxes as colonists than ever before. It was great to be an Israelite at the time of David when David was your king. But David would eventually die, and he was replaced by Solomon. And while Solomon was not the warrior that his father was, Solomon was a diplomat extraordinaire. We talked about uh, this, uh, right? That, that Solomon is, um, he is the, the best uh, diplomat in the history of uh, Israel. Um, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, we read, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. And he brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Uh, moving forward to chapter 4, uh, we read in verse 20, uh, that the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and they ate and they drank and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. And these countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. So again, we see that Israel is really benefiting from the rule of this chief diplomat. And, and, and we know that he was... Uh, the king of the diplomats when we look at uh, what his household looked like. Uh, because in, in verse, in chapter 11, we read, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. So he'd already uh, made a treaty with Egypt by marrying for Pharaoh's daughter, and he was making a treaty with everybody. He had a princess from every country in the known world. There wasn't nobody messing with Israel. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them. He had 700 wives of royal birth. 700 princesses in his palace. He's crazy. But he makes it work. And it's good for Israel. The people who were there at the time of Jesus' birth and were expecting the Messiah, they had in their mind David and Solomon. 
They expected the Messiah to be like David, to be someone who could raise up an army and beat the Romans all the way back to Italy. Get them out. We don't need Roman occupation anymore. Because everyone living at the time thought King Herod was a fraud. He's not a king. He is a flunky for Caesar. He's as bad as Samuel's sons taking bribes, growing rich on the backs of his people, while Rome gets all the chief rewards. So as they are awaiting the Messiah, they're expecting someone who's going to defeat Rome, who's going to establish peace for Israel, who's going to expand Israel's borders. Isaiah 9, we read the the prophecy for this Messiah, that to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Those who are waiting for the Messiah expected that the Messiah would bring pride and wealth to the citizens of Israel. They expected him to be like David. They expected him to be like Solomon. They expected him to be a Israel first politician. But what does Jesus say about his kingdom? In John chapter 18, Jesus has been brought before Pilate. He's been arrested by the Sanhedrin and brought before Pilate. And Pilate summons Jesus and he asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, Is that your own idea? Or did you talk to others about me? And Pilate responded, Am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by my Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Pilate said, Then you are a king. And Jesus responded, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Jesus is not concerned primarily with ruling on David's throne and expanding the borders of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus is the Messiah, is establishing a new kingdom which will not exist to bring wealth or power to its citizens. Rather, its purpose is to make new citizens. It's a kingdom that doesn't have borders. It's a kingdom that doesn't have a gross domestic product. It's a kingdom made of people. 
people who, whether they are Americans or Europeans or Asians or Africans, that are united together in the kingdom of Christ. It's a people that whether they are, are black or, or white uh, or of some other ethnicity, it's a people who are united together under the banner of Christ. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas described the Christian life as living as resident aliens. It's also been said, uh, we are ambassadors for the kingdom. We are occupying a space and a time when where we live here in central Ohio, in the United States, in North America, in the Western Hemisphere, in the year 2019, we don't live in a world where uh, the Christendom of the last 200 years holds the same sway that it did. Half of our neighbors don't know the gospel narrative. Half of our neighbors have, have no connection with a local church at any point in their lives. We are, we are living in a, in a time and a place when, uh, as citizens of the United States, we see a more polarized uh, and angry reality than, you know, our social commentators can remember. But in the face of that polarization, in the face of that anxiety, in the face of that anger and fear and malice, we have the opportunity to live as subjects of the king. And I think it's especially important for us and our sort of uh, cultural vocabulary of being very anti-king, because by golly, we fought the king off and we have democracy and it's good and it's better and it's what we want and like we don't want a king. We, 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 we live in a time and a place where, where if we were to have a king, we would vote on what the king should actually do. I mean, I think this is, this is one of the, uh, the, the, the reasons Christianity is hard in the United States is we are so tied to the democratic ideal that we think truth is something that can be established by majority vote. We think goodness is something that can be established by majority vote. Rather than relying on the wisdom of the king. The, the, the only one who truly has the perspective to see all that's gone before and all that is to come and all that is happening in the moment and God tells us what is good and what is right and what is true and how we should live and the difficulty for us is that we don't want to accept the king 
Jesus says he comes as the king of those who know the truth. But for us as people who are deeply, deeply tied to a majority rule democracy, we have trouble accepting that. We don't want to embrace the truth that God gives us. We want to embrace the truth that's, that's, that's practical. We want to embrace the truth that is uh, uh, culturally, uh, culturally most easy. So for us, as we live in this season of expectation, awaiting the coming of our King... Part of the expectation that we need to reimagine for ourselves is what does it look like to freely choose to follow the king? What does it look like to freely choose to say the truth that God has given us is the truth that we're going to live by? Rather than saying, you know, I, I have my, uh, my box of truth here, and I'm going to put some God things in there. Um, I'm going to put some uh, uh, best market practices in there. Uh, I'm going to put what my fourth grade teacher said that made sense back then in there. You know, what does it look like to, to fully embrace the truth that God gives us is the truth? The life that God wants to give us is the life that we are to live, not, not as a little piece that we you know, tack on the side when it's convenient for us. The way God has, has taught us to treat other people is the way we're going to treat everyone, not just the people who we like or who we think can do something for us. We expect... Because we live in a free 21st century United States of America, we expect that we can sort of pull together this hodgepodge of ideas and hold them all together. And it's going, and in our own strength, in our own power, in our own wisdom, we can create our best life. But like any Christmas movie, when we do that, eventually the bottom's going to fall out. Eventually we're going to discover that we aren't very good as kings and queens. That we are far better off to submit to the wisdom and the love of God. Because when we do that, our hope is restored and our expectations for what our life can be are exceeded. We experience the, the Red Rider BB gun 
at the end of Christmas story. Uh, uh, we experience the, the sleigh bell that jingles at the end of the Polar Express. Because God truly does love us. God truly does know what our best possible outcome can be. And when we submit ourselves to him, we truly get to experience it in the here and now. Let's pray.